As we come to the reading of God's word, those observations of Asaph in Psalm 73 are not far from what Job considers in Job 21. The subheading in your Bibles says something like Job's discourse on the wicked, or in other translations, um, the wicked do prosper. It's the main point of Job's speech, as it was of Asaph in the first 11 or 12 verses of Psalm 73. So we'll read that now, Job 21, beginning at verse 1. Then Job answered and said, Listen carefully to my speech, and let this be your consolation. Bear with me that I may speak, and after I have spoken, keep mocking. As for me is my complaint against man. And if it were... Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be astonished. Put your hand over your mouth. Even when I remember, I am terrified and trembling takes hold of my flesh. Why do the wicked live and become old? Yes, become mighty in power. Their descendants are established with them in their sight and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, neither is the rod of God upon them. Their bull breeds without failure, their cow calves without miscarriage. They send forth their little ones like a flock, and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and harp and rejoice to the sound of the flute. They spend their days in wealth and in a moment go down to the grave. Yet they say to God, depart from us. For we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we have if we pray to him? Indeed, their prosperity is not in their hands. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? How often does their destruction come upon them? The sorrows God distributes in his anger Like straw before the wind, like chaff that a storm carries away. They say, God lays up one's iniquity for his children. Let him recompense him that he may know it. Let his eyes see destruction. Let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care about his household after him when the number of his months is cut in half? Can anyone teach God knowledge? Since he judges those on high, one dies in his full strength, being wholly at ease and secure. His pails are full of milk, and the marrow of his bones is moist. Another man dies in the bitterness of his soul, never having eaten with pleasure. They lie down alike in the dust, and worms cover them. Look, I know your thoughts and the schemes with which you would wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the prince, and where is the tent, the dwelling place of the wicked? Have you not asked those who travel the road? And do you not know their signs? For the wicked are reserved for the day of doom. They shall be brought out in the day of wrath. Who condemns his way to his face, and who repays him for what he has done? Yet he shall be brought to the grave, and a vigil kept over the tomb. The clods of the valley shall be sweet to him. Everyone shall follow him, as countless have gone before him. 
How then can you comfort me with empty words since falsehood remains in your answers? Beloved, this is a passage that is closely tied to what we heard this morning where Zophar preached a sermon about the judgment of God, misunderstanding Job's case, and misprescribing what Job needed. Remember, Zophar was angry about what Job had said at the end of chapter 19, and so his anxious thoughts and turmoil within him caused him to answer. I mean, his speech was in many ways a response to Job's confession at the end of Job 19 about the resurrection of the body. Job had said, I know that my Redeemer lives and shall at last stand upon the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I will see God. That was Job's confession, a confession that Zophar denies and says, no, Job, don't place your hope in the life to come, but God brings judgment or blessing in this life now, and your suffering is therefore proof that you're wicked. Do you not know this of old, since man was placed on earth, that the triumph of the wicked is short and the joy of the hypocrite is for but a moment? That was Zophar's thesis back in chapter 20, and now Job goes on to critique it. And he does so from three angles. These are our three points which are not listed in your bulletin. Job critiques Uh, Zophar's wisdom, but really the the wisdom of all the friends as the verbs that he uses in both at the beginning and end where he's uh, directly referring to them are in the plural, and so he's, he's referring to all of them. He critiques their wisdom from the angle, first of all, of, of pastoral theology, and from the angle of natural theology, and finally from the angle of evangelical theology. Those are the, the three angles from which uh, Job uh, critiques Zophar and the friend's wisdom as he shows the inadequacy, indeed the, the bankruptcy, of not only Zophar's wisdom in chapter 20, but everything that the friends have been saying is they insist that Job's suffering is God's final verdict on the state of his soul, and that there is no hope of a hereafter. So look at me first at Job's critique from the angle of pastoral theology. We see that in verses 1 to 6, which is uh, sort of a review of what we heard this morning about what's lacking in Zophar's bedside manner. Remember back in Job 13, it was verse 4, in response to Zophar's speech, Job said, you are a miserable physician, both he and his friends. And so this here is really Job's critique of their bedside manner, and he says four things about it. First, he says, you're not listening. Second, he says, you're not letting me speak. Third, you're mocking me. And fourth, you're not taking my suffering seriously. In terms of his not listening, we see that in verse 2 where Job says, listen carefully to my speech and let this be your comfort. Remember all the way back in chapter 2, the friends had set out to come and comfort and console him in Job 2.11. That's the, the stated mission of the friends. But Job is saying, you're not doing that because you're not listening, because you're not hearing me. You're not really engaging with what I'm actually saying. You just keep on repeating the same song. 
And though you're quoting me at times to mischaracterize my words, you're not really engaging with what I'm saying. But you're like the person who has their mind made up about what they think of the one they're hearing, and so they listen just enough to critique them, but not enough to actually have heard what they're saying. Job's friends show us that it's possible to listen, but not really listen. That it's possible to listen only for words to pick apart, but not actually have ears to hear. We can do this when we listen to sermons. We can do this when we're engaged in debate. We we can do it with the counsel that we give. Pastors and elders, parents, listening only long enough to give a solution or to correct, but, but not really hearing what our children are saying. Not really hearing their hurt. And Job is here saying, it's like I'm at the doctor and I'm trying to list off my pains, but he keeps cutting in and telling me why it's my fault that I feel this way. Zophar and his friends have not truly listened. And insofar as they haven't, they serve as a caution to to parents and pastors and friends. They serve as a caution to those engaged in, in theological or political debate, serve as a caution to those who are offering counsel to not just spend our time while the other is speaking, formulating our next monologue, but to actually hear them. And as we hear them, Job says this will be our comfort. That's what what they set out to do in chapter 2. And he's saying, if you listen, verse 2, then this will be your consolation. If you listen, then you might actually bring me some comfort. So that's his first uh, pastoral theology critique. Next, they've not let Job speak. Verse 3 says, bear with me that I may speak. They keep on interrupting with their quick answers and angry inner thoughts, their simplistic solutions and critique of what Job has said. But as he points out in verse 4, his complaint is not against man. All throughout, he's been trying to pray to God, but they keep on interrupting. Ever since Job's long, dark lament in in chapter 3, where Eliphaz cuts in in chapter 4 and and responds to to what is one of the most... uh, one of the darkest chapters in the Bible, Job chapter 3, by basically saying in Job 4 and 5, Job, where is your reverence? You should be happy that God is correcting you and you need to stop complaining. You need to stop rebelling against God's providence by sinfully lamenting and be quiet. That's what Eliphaz says in in chapters 4 and 5. They've not let Job speak. They've not let him cry out to God. They've not let him pray, but keep inserting themselves into the conversation, not listening and not letting him speak. And then to make matters worse, Job's third pastoral theology critique is that they've mocked him. We see that at the end of verse 3 where he says, After I have spoken, keep mocking. After you let me speak, then you may go on and keep making fun of me and keep accusing me. And keep pleading my disgrace against me. As he said back in chapter 19, exalting yourself over me and using my suffering as proof of my sin. As you look down your noses at my sorry estate, pointing the finger at me and wagging your head at me, blaming me for my suffering. As we so often do also. 
somebody has a, a medical issue, we're, we're quick to say that it's because they, they either did or didn't do this. If somebody's spouse leaves them, we're quick to speculate why somebody's hurting. We're, we're quick, to, quick to blame and mock rather than look at them, verse 5, and be astonished. That's what Job wants. Rather than accusation and mocking, he's looking for someone to take his suffering seriously. He's looking for someone to do what he asked for back in Job 6.28. Look at me. Look me in the eye. He's saying, you're not taking my suffering seriously. Which is the fourth problem in terms of pastoral theology. They don't truly want to enter into the suffering of this man and be astonished by it and put their hands over their mouths and be terrified by what's happened to him. But instead, they want to rationalize. They want to give explanations so that they can distance themselves from his suffering by the explanations they give because it feels like there's safety in that. And so again, they they teach us how not to comfort the afflicted by rationalizing instead of sympathizing, by failing to look them in the eye, failing to weep with those who weep and cry out on their behalf as we take up the psalms of lament with them. Psalms like the the one we sang from Psalm 77. These friends have instead forbidden lament, failing to understand that some 30 to 40% of the songs that God will give his church are laments. As one pastor said, sometimes tears fit as well and often better than smiles on this side of glory. Job gives us permission to sing songs of lament. But his friends are like the modern church who says, no, we must only sing happy songs and therefore fails in the area of pastoral theology by neglecting one of the chief gifts that God has given for our worship, the Psalms which help us to enter into the suffering of of people like Job or of those across the pew who are suffering. So we take up the Psalms with them. They help us to do what Job's friends have failed to do and look them in the eye. I'll go on again at the end of the chapter to ask, how can you comfort me with empty words? And the word for empty is the same word from Ecclesiastes for vanity or meaninglessness. He's saying your words, your comfort is vain. It's meaningless. And not only because of all the ways you fail to comfort and fail to listen and fail to sympathize, but also because of the words you speak and the solutions that you give, the the, uh, system that you are setting forth fails to match up with reality. That's what uh, Job shows next in his critique from the angle of natural theology, in other words, uh, from general observations about the world as it truly is. Remember, Zophar's basic theme was that the triumph of the wicked is short and God judges them immediately. Now Job transitions in verse 7 to engage with that thesis, uh, specifically from the angle of natural theology or or general revelation as he he takes Zophar and his friends by the hand and and takes them on a tour of the world to show them the the rich and the famous, the tyrant and the unbeliever to show them how all throughout the world we see in these examples that their principle of God always judging the wicked immediately does not measure up to reality. Verse 7, the wicked do live and become old, he says. Yes, mighty in power. 
You said back in in verse 5 of chapter 20 that their triumph is always short. But I can show you example after example of tyrants and dictators and womanizers and God-hating atheists who live long lives and achieve great power. Of slaveholders in pre-Civil War America who got rich on the backs of the slaves they horribly mistreated and yet never paid for it in this life. Or high-ranking Nazi officials who escaped to South America after World War II to start a new life for themselves and, and never paid for it in this life for the heinous crimes they committed. Those who pay for their mansions through the sex trade and human trafficking. I, I can show you example after example where your assertion about immediate judgment in this life does not measure up to reality. Or I can show you example after example of those who, contrary to what Bildad said back in chapter 18 about the wicked having neither son nor posterity, I can show you example after example, verse 8, of, of descendants of the wicked who are established after them, often doing quite well on the profits that their parents made unjustly. Eliphaz in in chapter 5 said the tent of the wicked will be crushed and God will not allow their house to stand. But as I see it, Job says in verse 9, the houses of many God-hating blasphemers and oppressors of the poor are safe from fear. Nothing like what's happened to me has happened to them. You say that an immediate divine curse comes upon the wicked, but look, their, their bulls are breeding without fail, their calves without losing a little one, their agriculture is, is prospering, and their own children are happily dancing around like little lambs. Verse 11, they send forth their little ones like a flock, and their children dance. And so Job has not only carefully listened to every assertion that the friends have made, but is also a careful observer of the world around him and is pointing to exception after exception to the friend system. He's taking them on a tour of, of the world as it is and poking holes in their system by what's undeniable. Verse 13, the wealth of those who nevertheless say to God, depart from us, verse 14. For we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Or who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what do we profit if we pray to him? This is what the the unbelievers, the the wicked, the the tyrants, the oppressors in Job's day are saying. This is what the elite of our day continue to say. The politicians and, and those in Hollywood, the leading academics. Just like these men in verses 14 and 15 who hate the Christian religion. And yet God appears to allow them to prosper. That's what Job summarizes in verse 16. The New King James doesn't quite capture when it says, indeed, their prosperity is not in their hands. But actually, he's saying, is not their prosperity in their hand. He's pointing to those who deny God and say it profits us nothing if we pray to him and saying, Is it not obvious that even though they blaspheme God's name, they prosper? And then he distances himself from them. In the last part of verse 16, where he says, The counsel of the wicked, though, is far from me. He's saying, I wholeheartedly detest their philosophy that worshiping God is vain. 
They think there's no point in it because they're able to prosper even while denying him. But as for me, I will cling to God even if he slay me. That's what he said back in uh, chapter 13, verse 15. Even if the way to God is the way of the cross and I suffer in this life, even if my children are not established, even if my livestock are taken away and my house is dashed to the ground and my song of verse 12 is turned to a dirge and my wealth of verse 13 evaporates, I will still serve God and desire the knowledge of his ways because that is better to me than any of that. Do you see how Job is here answering the charge of Satan from chapter 1? Does Job serve God for nothing? Job is saying, it doesn't matter to me if those who hate God prosper and I don't, I will still love him. I will still follow him. I will still seek the knowledge of his ways. I will still pray to him. Job is here distancing himself from the wicked who he describes. And Job is here an example for us of what it looks like to, to cling to God, even as we look around and we see others in our own families, others in our own neighborhoods or workplaces, others in the world who seem to be doing quite well for themselves, even though they deny God and hate him. We seem to suffer. Job is showing us what it looks like to continue to trust God even in the midst of those circumstances as he distances himself from the wicked who he describes throughout this chapter. Who he then further considers in verses 17 to 21, saying, how often is the lamp of the wicked really put out? How often does destruction come upon them? And I like how the ESV goes on to translate the next couple of lines, saying, how often is it that God distributes pains in his anger, that they are like straw before the wind and chaff that the storm carries away? You say God lays up their iniquity for their children. He stores it up and will pay it to their families. But Job's point is that that wouldn't be justice. So, so he's, he's saying, look around and see how often is it that this really happens, that this judgment really comes. And then he anticipates the response of the friends and say, sure, you'll, you'll say God lays up their iniquity and their judgment for their children. But Job's point is that wouldn't really be justice. And so he says, let God pay it out to them that they may know it. Let their eyes see destruction. After all, Job says, it's no pain to them if their children see destruction after them, for what do the wicked care about what happens to others after they die? That's what Job is saying in verse 21. If you try to counter all that I'm saying in these examples of your system not applying in the case of, of Hollywood stars or those guilty of war crimes getting away in this life, if, if you try to counter that by saying their children will pay for it after them, that's not really justice. Job is again making the point that their system cannot account for the way that things are in this world. That they're mistaken in thinking that judgment always comes in this life. Saying that's not how it works. But verse 22, God is the one who's in charge and you cannot teach him knowledge. He's the one who judges even the angels on high. And so Job is making the point that humans cannot force God into conformity to their man-made systems, but is urging his friends to consider the incomprehensible way that God governs creation. 
They've been trying, as in uh, chapter 11 with, with Zophar's uh, first speech, to, to batter Job with the doctrine of God's transcendence and God's incomprehensibility. But he's saying, you're the ones who don't get it. You're the ones who don't understand God's incomprehensible ways. Look around you and see that God's exercise of justice transcends your system. It transcends what we as humans and our our finite understanding are able to comprehend. So he goes on to tell the story of of two men in uh, verses 23 to 26, who one lives a life of ease and prosperity, the other dies in bitterness of soul, never never having enjoyed, um, never having eaten with pleasure, it says at the end of verse 25. And then he goes on in verse 26 to say they lie down alike, In the dust, as one paraphrase puts it, both are laid out side by side in the cemetery. And worms cover them. And you cannot make a judgment about the state of their souls based on this life because both of them, Job is saying, end up in the same place after all. And so he's nudging his friends and nudging us toward the conclusion that these things are not going to be fully sorted out in this life. It says in verse 29, ask the travelers of the roads, ask anyone, and they will tell you the wicked are often spared on the day of calamity. ESV, I think, again, is is more helpful here. It says the evil man is spared on the day of calamity and rescued on the day of wrath. He's saying in this life, calamity does not always come upon the wicked. But as Job said at the end of chapter 19, sometimes we have to wait until the life to come for justice. Remember, that was Job's point concerning his own situation. After my skin is destroyed, after I die, my Redeemer will come and stand upon the earth and then I'll be vindicated. He said the same sort of thing back in chapter 14. If a man dies, shall he live? And he answers it in the affirmative, saying, I will wait for my renewal until my change comes, and then God will call, and I will answer, and he will put away my sin. Job, throughout the book, has been progressing toward this hope in the resurrection, toward this hope of all accounts being settled in the life to come, where he will be vindicated, and the blasphemers and slaveholders and tyrants he speaks of in this chapter will be judged. Job is recognizing what Asaph did by the end of Psalm 73. When I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. That you will cast the wicked into destruction, but afterward receive me to glory in the life to come. Where Asaph says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail like Job. I may be covered in boils and and shriveled up in the ash heap. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And he will afterward receive me into glory and destroy all those who deny him. Beloved, what Job is doing here is he's moving from natural theology to evangelical theology, and he's taking the gospel of Job 19, verses 25 to 27, and saying that is the only way to make sense of the problem of the suffering of the righteous and prosperity of the wicked in this life. 
He's doing precisely the same thing that Asaph will do in Psalm 73, and he's looking to the gospel hope that we confess in the Apostles' Creed of the one who will come to judge the living and the dead. That's part of the gospel hope that we confess, that there is a judgment coming, that that as our catechism says, in all distress and persecution, we can look with uplifted head and confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place, who has already become the, the redeemer, my redeemer, as Job said in Job 19, and remove the whole curse from me and will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to the joy and glory of heaven. So that's what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism, and that's the flip side of the doctrine that Job confessed at the end of chapter 19. Resurrection glory for those who cling to God even in the midst of suffering and, they, and say, though he slay me, I will trust him, but eternal judgment for those who make the confession of the unbeliever in Job 21.15, who say, I have no need of God. What does it profit me if I pray to him? Judgment for those who oppress the poor and hate God's image bears, for those who wreak havoc on the earth. Judgment is coming. And Job is saying, friends, you are entirely too earthly-minded, too earthly-centered in your outlook on all of this. You're, You're not listening to me. He says, just just listen and hear what I'm saying about the resurrection of the body and the glory of the life to come for those who trust in God, who though this life may be a veil of tears, who though they may be crushed underfoot by tyrants, though they may lose everything they have in a day, God will send his son to right every wrong and wipe away every tear and judge the wicked in the life to come. He's saying, if you were to come and say that to me, That would truly bring comfort. But instead, you've come to me with empty nothings, verse 34, which bring no comfort. Because my only comfort in life and in death is that I belong in body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior and Redeemer, who I've confessed in chapter 19 and long to see with my eyes. That's the only thing that will bring comfort. That's the only thing that will bring the comfort that you set out back in chapter 2 to bring but have failed to give in verse 34. Job is making the point as he critiques his friends from the angle of evangelical theology, gospel theology, that anything other than that good news will fail to bring comfort. Anything other than the good news of the one he foreshadows in his faithful suffering and the one he is clinging to by faith and the confession that he made in chapter 19 that he here defends is our only comfort. And so Job is calling his friends and he's calling his readers and he's calling us not to try to comfort with, with empty nothings that are absent the gospel, but he's calling them to repent of their faithlessness. That's what verse 34 is saying, their, their falsehood, their treachery, and embrace by faith the one he foreshadows and the one he predicts in chapter 19. And confess with Asaph that whatever happens in this life, he is our portion and our only comfort is in belonging to him, who by his spirit also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on 
and to live for him. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we